Zan for leading our music. Uh, Aaron is off uh, with a, a, um, his choral group that he sings with. They're actually in Virginia this morning, and uh, Suzanne, we appreciate it very much. Find a couple of things. Find, please, uh, the, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And if you would find uh, on the, if you'll turn the page from your, the worship guide at the very top, there's the sermon title, and then there's an outline. I sure would be grateful if you would follow that. That will make me feel good to know you're following that. And a couple of things, a couple of invitations while you're finding those. First is to meet FBC next Sunday at, uh, right after this service is our, the, the regular, our, we do it regularly, our orientation class for potential new members and for new members. If you're exploring in, in your heart the idea of maybe joining our church, we'd love to have you right after this service. Um, you can just let me know you're coming or come. It's not a big deal. Free lunch. Um, love to have you learn about our culture, our history, and our future. And then um, Wednesday, we'll continue our talk about Israel. I'll start teaching about 1215 down in the family room, and then about um, 545 in the family room. Uh, if we're still here after Snowmageddon, then uh, I invite you to, uh, to the Israel study. <clears throat> Elijah McCoy was bored. He was bored and he was frustrated. This was the late 1800s. Elijah McCoy worked on uh, the railroad. He was a railroad engineer. And uh, he'd, he'd ride the train. And when the train would stop every once in a while to let off a couple of passengers or let on a couple of passengers, Elijah's job was to get down and oil the engine and get back up. So hop down, oil it, hop back up, hop down, oil it, and hop back up. And thus was his monotonous day. He thought there has to be a better way to do this, so he invented uh, a way to oil uh, the engine so that it wouldn't be necessary to have somebody do that all day, and he did. It was so successful that he tried his hand at other inventions and did very well. He invented lots of things that made work easier for people, and he was so successful there were people that copied Elijah McCoy's inventions. But those copies were not as good as the real thing, and so people learned to ask for the real McCoy when they were going to buy something like that. And, and legend has it, that's where our phrase comes from. When we want the real deal, the genuine article, the genuine bona fide thing, we ask for the real McCoy, or we'll say, that's the real McCoy. Legend has it, it goes back to that inventor. Today we come to the second in our, uh, our walk through the Ten Commandments. The, today we talk about not a substitute, but the, the real McCoy. If you'll find Exodus 20, we're going to begin reading at verse 4. And God says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This second commandment is similar to the first. The first commandment, of course, was don't have any gods before me. This one says don't make images and idols and don't worship them. 
God is so big, he's so beyond us. We, he's so beyond our vocabularies, our categories. We can't wrap our minds around the bigness of God. And so throughout history, people who have sensed that there is somebody bigger than you and I, people who've sensed that there is something or someone out there from which everything came have tried to, tried to form things that were simpler, uh, more under, understandable, maybe tangible. Since we can't get our minds around God, people have tried to fashion something that we could get our minds around and, and have chosen to worship those things. And those things are idols. And that's where we are in our second commandment. God says, if, if you can wrap your head around it, and if you can understand it, then it's not me. So don't worship anything that's so simple, so tangible, so understandable. We understand why people have formed idols, but God says don't, don't settle for those, those simpler things. If they're simple, then they are not me. The first commandment broken, it seems, was this, this commandment. Moses was up on the mountain doing business with God. The people down below waiting experienced a spiritual vacuum. They wondered what, what mysterious thing could be going up, going on up there at the top of the mountain. And they, they wanted to worship something, and they didn't know what to do. And so they said to Aaron, who's second in charge behind Moses, would you fashion for us a, a god with a little g? So they pulled all their gold, and they melted it, and, and one of the artisans among them shaped it into the, formed it into the shape of a calf. And when Moses came down, and he saw that after he'd had this sacred experience with the Almighty on the mountain, he came down and his friends were, were worshiping this golden calf. He was so mad. He was mad at Aaron. He asked Aaron, what happened? And Aaron said, Moses, it's the strangest thing. We threw our gold into the fire and a calf came out. And Moses knew that he was lying and he was so mad that Moses broke a couple of the commandments of his own. He was so mad at Aaron and the people. Maybe the first, probably the first commandment broken was this commandment about not having idols. But what is an idol? I have an, a definition on your outline. I looked back at my Bible dictionaries this week, and I combined, sort of, uh, I don't know, pulled together these, uh, these de varying definitions. This will be our working definition this morning. I think it's the biblical definition of an idol. Something of religious significance, in other words, something that gives our life meaning or promises extraordinary help, conceived in the minds of humans that stands between us and the biblical understanding of, the pure adoration of, and the unbridled devotion to, surrender to, the true God. One more time. Something of religious significance, something that gives life meaning and offers extraordinary help, conceived in the minds of humans that stands between us and the biblical understanding of, pure adoration of, and unbridled surrender to, the true God. So let's ask the obvious question, what are, the, what are today's idols? Let me note a few. First is the idol of technology. Oh, Travis, you're not one of those anti-technological guys, are you? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm grateful for technology. I, I look around Huntsville and I see what scientists and technologists are, are doing for 
military readiness for agriculture, for health care, and it's just astonishing, and we ought to celebrate and do celebrate that. However, technology can, can be an idol, but Travis, technology is not religious. Well, well, it can be. Remember, that which is religious gives life meaning and offers extraordinary help. Michael Smirkanish was doing a story recently that fascinated me on young men in America, young American men, and, and how they feel so isolated and lonely and, and disconnected from other people. So isolated and lonely and disconnected. He said the more connected young American men are to technology, it seems the more disconnected they are from people. And he said, now that you can have a, an AI girlfriend, it's even worse, artificial intelligence girlfriend. Well, I hadn't heard of that, so I, I Googled it, and sure enough, you can, you can kind of fashion your own girlfriend. She looks like you want her to look, and talks like you want her to talk, and talks about things that are of interest to you, apparently, and And I, I, just, I wonder where we're going, right, with our, our technology. And you know who was worried about this back in the 60s? The most famous citizen of Huntsville, Werner von Braun, was worried about this. He, he, he was worried about how quickly tech, these, these technolo technological advances were unfolding, and he was fearful that we were getting ahead of our ethics. And he said the church ought to be at the table talking about technology. Now, he didn't want the church to impede technological progress, but he said the church ought to have a voice in the unfolding of technology. Look at that quote. It's on your outline from Von Braun. It seems we're only one step away from being able to tamper with the features of man. Such a capability not only raises gruesome aspects of future dictators and madmen, it also touches on the fundamental issue of the dignity of man. It is here where, in my opinion, the church should step in. Well, um, I, I want to step in, but frankly, I'm, I'm not qualified. I'm not an ethicist. Maybe I at least can say this simple, two simple things. Number one, technology cannot replace or, or replicate the, the role in your life of our Father and Creator. And two, science, as wonderful as it is and as helpful as it is, cannot solve the deepest problem of humankind. Only Jesus can do that. And I know that sounds preachy, but the deepest answer to our most profound questions and problems is not is not so, they're not solvable by, by technology and science, as, as amazing as they are. So the first potential idol is technology. And then there's the second potential idol. It's on your outline. It's, it's our free will, our ability to make moral choices. In other words, other words, we can idolize our moral freedom. Look at Colossians 3, 5 and 6. It's on your outline. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or greed, all of which is idolatry. 
I hate to pick on the 1960s. I did last week. I'm going to pick on it that decade one more time today. The 1960s saw a lot of wonderful things, the civil rights movement, the Jesus movement. But the 1960s, I believe, will we'll look back on, even future historians will look back on and say that it wasn't necessarily good for our society. The free love um, spirit of the 1960s, I believe, is not serving us well today. And the big deal in the 60s was freedom. In fact, at, um, at Woodstock, which was, the, of course, the big outdoor concert that in many ways symbolizes the spirit of the 60s, Richie Havens sang a song, and, and, um, and the title is Freedom. And if you listen to it, it, you get to the chorus, and it's just the same word over and over and over. Freedom, 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 freedom. For eight, eight times in the first chorus, ten times in the second chorus. Freedom, 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 freedom. And God has granted us free will. He has, and we celebrate that. But that free will, that freedom can become an idol. When we elevate our freedom over the standards, the moral and ethical standards of our Creator, then our free will, our freedom has become an idol. The thing is, we don't, we don't get the right to decide right and wrong. We are the created, not the creator. Our role is to ask God to enlighten us as we read Scripture, and then we're bound to those standards, not to our, our free will. I'm nervous that, that the trickle-down effect from the 60s is not serving us well in the 2020s. Don't idolize your freedom. A third, uh, a third idol is, is church membership. Now, Travis, it's a long way from from Woodstock to church membership, that's true. So let me, but remember, look at the, look at the outline at, at that um, idol again, the definition of an idol. An idol is something of religious significance, something that gives life meaning and offers extraordinary help, conceived in the minds of humans, that stands between us and the biblical understanding of, pure adoration of, and unbridled surrender to the true God. See, church membership can be a substitute for the real thing. God is so immense, so beyond our categories, but we understand church, right? I mean, most churches have a building, and, and churches have cultures and tradition, and, and I've either joined or I haven't, and so church is understandable. And I'm, I'm afraid that we, we settle, some of us, for church membership and, and miss out on the, the abundant life possible when we when we pursue Jesus passionately. Don't settle. Don't, don't think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a church member, and that covers the bases. There is so much more. There's the rich fellowship, and there's the discipleship, and there's, well, there's so much more than being a church member. I wish every one of you in this room were a member of First Baptist Church. Let me go on record to say that. Just don't settle there. The idol of church membership. And then the idol about which Micah was singing, the idol of worship styles and of worship quality. Worship styles and worship quality can become idols. 
Now, we all have stylistic preferences, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If you've been in church long enough, you have a style that you prefer. You know, there are kind of two basic styles. There's the style that says we prefer hymnals and the organ, and the style that says we prefer screens and the drums. Very broad, right? But even within this style, those of us who prefer the hymnals and the organ still have different preferences. Some would like, you know, more high church music, more formal liturgy, and others like gospel songs, but we still, you know, still like organs and hymnals. And then those of us who like contemporary worship, we, some of us would rather sing songs from the 1990s, and some of us say, well, if, it, if, you, if I can't hear it on the radio this week, it's too old. And so even within these general, Carrie this morning was listening to Andre Crouch. Anybody remember Andre Crouch? That dates you and her, that Andre Crouch does. To have a stylistic preference is not a bad thing. Just don't make it an idol. Some churches have been divided by the idol of style. And let me congratulate you, long before I got here, you all decided on two styles that you would offer, and you did it well. You did it like Christians ought to, so good for you for that. Just let's not make the style the idol, and let's not make quality the idol. Now, I think all of us who participate publicly in the facilitation of worship ought to do our best to prepare and so on, but don't, don't, don't worship quality or talent. I love to hear Esther Kim play that organ, but when I leave here, I shouldn't be thinking first about Esther playing the organ. When I leave a worship service and I say, that was a marvelous worship experience, what do I mean? Do I mean that's my style and those folks sure are talented? Or do I mean today? I heard from the creator of the universe and I poured my heart out in worship to him. When you leave worship today, if you were to say, boy, that was a marvelous worship experience, what do you mean? Do you mean, I like that style and Esther sure can play the organ? Or do you mean today? I encountered and was transformed by the Father and Creator of everything that is. Don't idolize style and talent. Now, the final worship is kind of the, the grand poobah, the big kahuna of idols. The, the, the big kahuna, the grand poobah uh, of, of idols is this. Projecting our preferences uh, onto God. Inventing God, seeing Him as we wish He were or as we fear Him to be. Making God who we want Him to be or fear Him to be. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said, God created us in His image, 
and then we return the favor. We create God, he said, in our image. We project our preferences onto God. Now, some people make God out to be a sappy grandfather. You know, some people don't like the idea, and I get it, of God the commandment giver. Some people don't like the idea of wrath. Some people don't like, you know, the idea that our that there are eternal consequences to our spiritual decisions. And so we turn God into the boys will be boys and girls will be girls God. We turn God into the permissive, indulgent God, the wink and a nod God. And trouble is we don't, we don't get to do that. Isaiah said when you encounter God, your first thought is, woe is me, not ain't that cool. God is love, but he is also holy. And with that holiness comes expectations and standards, even some things that make us uncomfortable. So let's not, let's not project onto God this, he is love, he just, he's not sappy. You see the difference? On the other hand, there are people who, make God out to be a tyrant. Remember Jim Baker, the, the famous preacher from a few decades ago? You'll remember Tammy Faye, I'll bet, if you, even if you don't remember Jim. He had Heritage USA and PTL Club. Well, Jay Baker was his son, grew up in his home. Jay Baker had such a terrible experience, he left the Christian faith. He came back to the Christian faith, a different form that I'm comfortable with, but at least he came back. But Jay Baker wrote about his experience growing up in the home of the preacher, uh, Jim Baker, and this is, uh, this is what he said. As I was growing up, I never thought of God as a God of love and grace. Instead, he was an eye, the eye in the sky. Jay Baker continued, that's the kind of God I grew up with, even though I was in the home of the most famous, one of the most famous pastors in the country. I didn't know anything about grace or God's accepting love. To me, God was keeping a giant scorecard, so I better live up to his standards or get hit on the head with his big old bat. I better do everything just right or I was dead meat. So he... So Jay, ba- Jay Baker grows up in this strict home where he doesn't hear about grace, just rules, and he projects his idea onto God and says, God is a tyrant. Now listen, I understand. Some people grow up with terrible fathers, and so when they think of God as father, that, that's really hard. And there are people who've been abused by the church, by church leaders, and to think of God as merciful is really hard. And there are people who've had terrible calamities, terrible crises in their lives, and to think of God as powerful and loving is really hard. It's easy for some, because of life experience, to think of God as callous and cold and even mean. But even that is a projection of God as we fear Him to be. So some of us create a God we wish him to be, others create a God we fear him to be, and God says you don't, you don't get the right to do either. God would say, you cannot think of me in any way other than how I have revealed myself 
in my word. God would say, you cannot think of me in any way other than how I have revealed myself in my word. And that's, a, and that's holiness and love. He is holy with all the standards that come with that. He is love with all the safety that comes with that. But we have to hold those two in balance, both holy and love. And any imbalance is an idol. It is projecting our understanding of God onto the reality of God. One final verse is on your outline. It's from the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Last week I said that um, doing this little memoir for our kids that I, when they were, I was asked, what, what advice would you have for the next generation? You remember maybe if you were here, I said uh, the most important word in the human language is grace, God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And to pursue any substitute for God is to forfeit that. It's to lose, it's to either be afraid of God or to think too lightly of God. Grace is God's gift to people like you and me who are frail and imperfect and sinners by nature and by choice. Don't forfeit that by settling for something that would be a poor substitute for the real thing. We sing 679, that is our hymn, and we sing so that you will come. We sing not just to wrap things up, but as an invitation. Some of us are waiting down here to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus, to talk with you about what it means to be a member of the church, which is important. And while others are singing, we are going to wait for and look for you.